You're listening to Return Again. I'm Goel Jasper, and my guest today is Rav Simcha Hachbaum. Rav Simcha grew up on Staten Island in New York. Beginning in the second grade, when he heard about Avraham Avinu's Aliyah in Parashat Lech Lecha, he became focused on the idea of returning to the land of Israel. He and his wife Leah were able to make that happen in 1995, moving to Hebron, the city of our forefathers and mothers. Parents of six wonderful children, they still live in Hebron, and that's where I sat with Rav Simcha recently to return again to his Aliyah story. Personally, one of my uh, first sort of influential connections about the idea of living in Israel was when I was living in Baltimore, and you came to Baltimore to visit and to sing on Friday night with us, and, and I was just so taken that someone who uh, grew up in Staten Island could move here and lead such a meaningful life, and it's really stayed with me my whole life, so thanks for inspiring me. I'm so happy that these trips abroad brings us beautiful results and beautiful fruits to Eretz Yisrael, yeah, yeah. and that it plants the right seeds you know, in people's minds. And as much as we only want to stay in Eretz Yisrael, but sometimes we have to go abroad a little bit to inspire people to remember the vision and God's first statement, Tavram Avinu Lech Lecha. Which is coming up uh, very soon enough. Um, but anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Do you remember the moment, the first moment you thought like there was this thing called moving to Israel or Aliyah? I think even as a little kid, I remember as a child, I learned in Yeshiva Flappish, probably second grade, uh, we had an Israeli teacher right. who they sent to do Shlichut. I think maybe that teacher got a little carried away with the Shlichut. She, <laughs> he, she forgot to come back. But what I do remember was learning a little bit the first thing Hashem told Avraham Avinu. The first thing God tells a Jew is not about a Yeshiva. It was not about... Uh, opening up a mikvah, it was not about opening a particular shul, it was Eretz Yisrael. And Baruch Hashem, from as a child, at a young age, learning Chumash, and just listening to the stories of the parsha, I had some type of like a little bit in the back of my uh, conscience, some type of vision of, of, of the land of Israel. It was something not from this world, where Avraham Avinu lived, but it was some type of vision that was already imprinted in me as a child. I also had the privilege to, in approximately fourth grade, third, fourth grade, to move to Staten Island, New York. And there, I had the privilege to daven in the young of Staten Island. And there, Rabbi J. Marcus, Rabbi Yaakov Marcus, he was new at the whole rabbinate. It was, I think, his first, as far as I remember, his first pitch. And he very, very, very much spoke Aliyah. And later on was one of those few rabbis, Baruch Omeviosa, right. that he actually, not only did he move, all his kids moved here, all his children, and they all established their homes in Beit Shemesh um, over here. So a lot, a lot of the sermon speeches that we heard was always about what was going on in the land of Israel. So I, I know that, that you are a musmach of, of Shlomo. We'll talk about that a little later. But you already must have had some kind of spiritual spark in second grade to, to take the learnings of Abraham and Lech Lecha to the point of, wow, you know, this land of Israel is a magical place. Like, what, what kind of a house did you grow up in that you had that, that mm-hmm. DNA, so to speak? So, well, everything's a combination. You know, there's a gift from God, 
I had the privilege to be born on Simchat Torah, which <laughs> definitely had a big influence on my, on my persona. Happy and, birthday. Uh, you just celebrated a birthday. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. 55 years old. And at the same time, we also had the great privilege of also growing up in a house that very, very, very much cared about Israel. I can't say Aliyah was a strong topic, but definitely anything that went on in the land of Israel um, was always a topic of discussion in my house, in my shul. And as much as the sports page was the first thing I turned to, the back of a newspaper or the New York Times, the sports pages, but Israel was always second or first in everything that went on in the household. Right. So you're in fourth grade, you move to Staten Island, and you're struck by Rabbi J. Marcus. And how, how long was he there while you were there before he moved to Israel? He was there the entire time I was oh, there, okay. and he continued afterwards. From third through twelfth grade, um, I had the privilege to be, to be in that show. And it was definitely something, you know, uh, American rabbi with so much going on within the community, putting so much focus on the land of Israel, right. bringing guest speakers from the land of Israel, uh, rabbanim from the land of Israel, and anything going on in Israel was always a topic of discussion. So did, did you ever think, like, during your high school years or whatever, like, maybe I should live in Israel? So during my high school years, I also had the privilege to get involved with Rabbi Kahana's disciples and JDL, Jewish Defense League, Russian yeah. Jewry. Although Rabbi Kahana already had moved to Israel and was heavily involved with establishing his Kach party, at the same time, many of his disciples wanted to keep up this idea of strong Jewish identity, proud Jews. Rabbi Kahana had come many, many times, often to the young Israel of Staten Island, to at least once a year to come to visit a awareness, education, and be fundraising. Sure. So we had that exposure. And at the same time, Russian Jewry was a big topic then. Right. And both young Israel of Staten Island had demonstrations or the people participated in demonstrations on behalf of Russian Jewry. We also were always involved in the shul, whether it's a simple thing as the Israeli Day Parade or just simple fundraising and an Israel committee about what was going on in the land of Israel. And so... When would you say the topic of Aliyah turned into a practical discussion for you? I think a little bit in high school already. Um, I started to read books from Menachem Begin, I think it was called The Revolt. Right. Other kids were reading other not such holy topics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and into other uh, teenage hormonal uh, influenced uh, hobbies, I somehow other got very, very connected to the land of Israel and to the history of the land of Israel and to those who fought pre-48, and they're going the Lachi. My father's history teacher, and a lot of Holocaust uh, was always in the house, and my grandparents lived on the Lower East Side, my parents grew up in the Lower East, my father grew up in the Lower East Side. So there was always something about a shadow, and my father always, Yom HaShoah, ran the program in the shul, and we always heard about the history, you know, about the six million, which automatically led to a lot of thought. The plot of the Jewish people then, the plot of the Jewish people today, and a little bit understanding that the state of Israel that was born as a result and a little bit of a connection. At a certain point in high school, I we went to more of what they would call a yeshiva type of, uh, yeshivish type of high school in Borough Park. Although there was unbelievable, uh, great, great uh, rabbis, teachers, but the concept of Am Yisrael was very, very, um, almost didn't exist. If anything about Israel was discussed, it was to criticize the land of Israel. Mm -hmm. But the government, I'm talking, not God forbid, the land, <laughs> right. but the government of Israel and its policies and its sure. uh, certain secular aspects of it. But inside I had this burning, burning fire to do something on behalf of the Jewish people, on behalf of Am Yisrael, 
whether it was Russian jury, whether it was a terror attack happening in the land of Israel, and feeling that pain and what was going on in the land of Israel. And at a certain point, I realized that if I would stay another year, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't having the right influence. And at, I finished up Regions early, and I went to a very intense summer school program. We did everything. And 12th grade, I came to the land of Israel to start looking and spiritually searching for my special connection to Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael and Torah Yisrael. So, amazing. So, so you spent your 12th grade year in Israel? Like you finished uh, yeah, high school early? Yeah, I finished a little, I made a point to finish early. Yeah. And we spent the 12th grade year in the land of Israel. So who's we? No, it was myself. But I was coming <laughs> and uh, I can remember coming to the Kotel for the first time, asked the world if this means anything to you. Show me a little bit, guide me. And a little bit, I wanted to connect, not uh, the holy service that perhaps my father did or my grandfather did or, or whatever the perception was that it was supposed to be. I knew I had a special calling connected to Eretz Yisrael. This was your first uh, visit to Israel? My first time ever. I never had wow. visited Israel, although Israel was spoken about yeah, a lot, yeah, sure. as I mentioned, both in the shul and in the house. But it was my first visit to Israel. And I remember coming from the airport to the Kotel and a little bit that first davening at the Kotel and a little bit beyond the official sh checklist shachet, you know, there was a m much deeper, deeper longing and yearning and desire to want to do something and connect to something. Not just the Gemara says and Tosfot says, and, but be part of something bigger, of what's called the Triyah Lumit, the national rebirth of the Jewish nation, returning to its land and coming back over here. And so... This is 16 years old. So you're 16 years old, you're here on your own? What, what was the plan? I, like, I'm just I'm trying, I'm trying to understand, like, so I said to your parents, Mom, Dad, I'm going to Israel for a while. I'll, I'll be back. So there was, was official yeshiva I was checked into. Okay. But it wasn't, you know, it was clear also that wasn't, uh, it was a temporary thing till I was able to, to guide myself properly and to, uh, to find the right thing was, uh, so to say, a room and board, right. you know, to, in order to explore spiritually something much, much deeper. Yeah. So what kinds of things did you learn during your time here? So endless, endless, infinite, infinite knowledge, like, infinite experiences. I had the privilege to th be three years in Israel. And during the three years I was in Israel, I never stayed in the same yeshiva. Not because I was unstable, because I was very stable. Because mm -hmm. I was looking and searching to taste from a lot of different flavors of Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael, wow. and different types and styles and learning, and different types of Rabbanim. And, and thank God, I never stopped looking, I never stopped searching, till today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, quote, established with grandchildren, and I'm still like a, like, like a, like a Baal for the first time, looking and searching, and always hungry for the best halal, the best davening, the best hakafot, the be, a new sefer that came out, and something, a new spiritual energy that I could connect to and recharge my, my batteries. I, I want to stick with that for a second. Obviously, that, that's something that's very important to you, you know, to always be searching for what's happening next and, and trying to maximize opportunities and experiences and, and that kind of thing. Do you believe that that's an objectively important component of living in Israel? Again, I, I can't talk about other people because I have so much of my own faults. <laughs> but at the same time, what I can say is, is that I think sometimes what unfortunately happens with a lot of people who make Aliyah is that that became the end goal. Mm. And once they make Aliyah, it's really just an, a, a, a springboard 
for so much more growth and holiness and spirituality, it's not the end. It's just the beginning. Yeah. It's the beginning of opening up a whole new venue, a whole new avenue of receiving a higher level of soul, of, of a ruach and a neshama and operating on a different plane and a different frequency where we're not just operating on a world called Asiyah, a low world, operating on much higher spiritual planes. And I think sometimes we get caught up with a made aliyah and now what? And there has to be this aliyah as a springboard of constant spiritual growth etc. And not just saying, now that I'm here in the chosen land, and now that I passed this unbelievable challenging test of making Aliyah, it's not the end, it's just the beginning. Yeah, you know, this is a conversation about you, but I'll tell a quick story about me that, that emphasizes the point you just made. Uh, we, we made Aliyah in 2004, the end of 2004, and of course, soon thereafter, we had the, the whole uh, tragedy of Gush Katif, and um, as you probably remember, um, many of the families were placed in the Shalom Hotel in Yerushalayim. And um, we went there one Motzei Shabbat. Uh, we heard that Chaim David was going to be playing music for them, for the, for the families, to give them a little, uh, maybe a little morsel of simcha uh, during, during such a challenging time. And so we went to, to also be there. And I remember... We're sitting, and all of a sudden, he starts playing. And I said to myself, I've been running so fast since we made Aliyah. Because everybody says, you know, you have to make sure you have Parnassah, and you have to make sure that, that your kids are taken care of, and you have to make sure that schools and, and, and shopping and everything, that we didn't have a chance to say, okay, now that we're in Israel, like, who do we want to be? Who... What are, we, what are we striving for? To your point about, like, we had this sense that it was somewhat of a finish line. And so, so Chaim David is playing, and the tears come, and, and at that moment I said, okay, now is, when, now is when life really begins. That's not the end of life. It's like, now is when things begin. So I really, I really appreciate what you, just, uh, what you just walked through. Um, Okay, so you're, so you're here, and, and during these three years, you're exploring and exploring Torah from so many different perspectives and exploring Israel from so many different perspectives, but you went back. So what, what made you decide, okay, I love this place, but I have to go back? So it wasn't fully my decision. You know, we also had, Baruch Hashem, caring parents and loving parents yeah. who felt a college degree was very, very important. And... You know, I very, very much wasn't against going to college, mm -hmm. but I was hoping I could maybe do it over here. Right. But at the same time, you know, the way Hashem had it was that in those years there was no communities like Nachlaot or Baka or a whole Bailan community that's going on, or Machon Lev even, I don't, maybe it was just starting, but it didn't have an Anglo program type of thing. And so there really was less opportunity, but at that time, Still relatively being young and a dependent, we went back. And like I said, it was much less common for people on their own to uh, stay and make Aliyah. We went back, but that longing and yearning never, never stopped. So you uh, went to Yeshiva University? I went a little bit a uh, semester to Brooklyn College. Okay. I went over in the summer to Pace University. My whole goal was to finish college as fast as possible, right. get that piece of paper, <laughs> and then make it back to the Holy Land. 
And during that time, we also made sure always to visit Israel, mm. to keep, whether it was intercession, to keep the spark, to keep the spark alive. And the idea was never to get too comfortable in America, never get too comfortable in, uh, in Chutzarets, but to always, always want to, uh, to remember that Aliyah is at, uh, at the fore forefront. Even when it came time to the dating at the end of college and the beginning of, of working, there's always a priority that it's not even in the... Just like I personally wouldn't consider someone who said, you know, I love being Jewish, but Shabbos, maybe in the, in the long term, I'll consider it, but I'm not yet holding there, you know. But I do like, I do appreciate those who do keep Shabbat. I wouldn't consider that would be something, a red mark for me. I would need Eshet Chayel, who is also Shomer Shabbat. So to living in the land of Israel for me right. is on par with Torah, with Olam Haba, with all the essentials, and is one of the mitzvot equal to all 613. And therefore, it wasn't something compromisable or something just in theory on paper. With, it's a nice thing to talk about or to put on your shidduch resume that you want to make aliyah. It was clear that this has to be a prerequisite into someone I'm going to go out with and marry and be with hmm. and build a family with. Right, right. So when you were in college, you were just trying to get through so that you could ultimately wind up back here. Were you... You know, you obviously you have you had friends from high school, etc., and and maybe even in college you had friends. Were you were you an activist at all, trying to trying to explain to other people the the imperative of living in Israel, or, or sort of like live and let live? And I definitely wasn't an activist. I wasn't very uh, strong spoken on anything. I was very um, uh, I'll call spiritually. Uh, always working inward mm -hmm. and um, in those years and it wasn't that didn't speak about it ever or think about it but there wasn't ever, uh, such groups as Nefesh Benefesh then right. there was no such um, real types of movements of Chugay Bayit about Aliyah not that I know of at least and at best there was a dosage when Rabbi Kana came to America at a demonstration or uh, something was talking about you know and bringing the Jews back to uh, to Eretz Yisrael, and there was always a weekly article in the Jewish press that I always would look to see what's going on, the real, un, you know, un, unfiltered truth of what's going on in the land of Israel, and that's something also that always kept me a little bit connected, yeah. those weekly columns. I've, I've read a lot of his writings. Uh, I'm also, a, I, I, I never met him, but he is, an, he is uh, one of the Rabbanim in my sukkah poster, you know, I made my own sukkah poster with all the Rabbanim who impacted me, and he's, he's on there. So I, I, I understand a little bit about who he was. A lot of his writings back then were, were quite negative about what was taking place in Israel. Yet you, you found it motivating. Maybe talk about yes, that a little bit. It's a very interesting thing, you know, that, again, in the, the one hand, you have to see the collective message. The collective message was you have to be in Israel. But, but I picked up a lot, and especially from Rav Shlomo, and really I think Rabbi Kano is trying to say that if you see something that's broken, if you see something that's someone who's sick, if you're a layman, you walk into the hospital and you say, oh, this one is sick, this one is really sick, this one is going to die, this one has a liver problem, this one has a heart problem, this one has a tumor, this one has the ca cancer, and you quickly run out of there. If you're a doctor, you quickly roll up your sleeves and you get to work. 
So I think from both of these special personalities, the idea was there are problems and therefore we need you to come and get to work. And we have to then roll up our sleeves and start to save and mamtik and sweeten what's going on and not from without by sending a check but from within. And it's called being mamtik mi bifnim and to sweeten from within as a player, not as an observer, as someone who's not just a fan in the stand but on the ball field playing the game itself. And that's something that I think what really have a kahana in sometimes pointing out, we'll call it all the mumim and all the blemishes, whether it's from the government end or the secular, the secularism in Israel, it was that we have to come and make Israel a better place. Mm. And it's up to us to roll up our sleeves and become those healers and become those doctors and become those activists in making Eretzel holier, more spiritual, and more connected to the book and to, the, to their roots. Maybe this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but uh, we're 25 plus years later, actually maybe even 30 years later from when you were in that first visit to Israel. Is, is it better here? Has the situation improved? Is it sweeter? Is it holier, et cetera, et cetera? What's your perspective? Interesting. Again, my perspective, of course, is all opinions are, have, have a certain aspect of being correct, but my personal perspective is, is on the one hand, if you read the newspapers, you read the politics, it's more corrupt, it's more frustrating, it's more degrading, and it's more, uh, we'll call it even demeaning to what the Jewish nation is supposed to be. On the other hand, when I get the scut to travel and to meet Israelis, whether it's soldiers who are stationed here, whether when I go out to run Shabbatonim in the spirit and the Ruach of Rav Shlomo, I feel the country and the people are much, much more thirsty, much holier, much more connected to, to, to tradition, much more wanting to, realizing that they have to connect to something. And I'm not saying observance in 613 and 24-7, but tradition and realizing that we're not a nation like all other nations. There's something unique about the Jewish people. This can't just be a state to be a nation like all other nations. There is a calling to be something unique and something happening here of over 2,000 years. So if you're only looking, you know, at everything in life, in Pnimiot, Rav Shlomo would teach us, there's a Marechat Chitzonit and a Marechat Pnimit. There's always an external and an internal. On the outside, things may look rotten, things may look not so good, but the inside of the inside, there's so much holiness, there's so much good, there's so much chesed, there's so much unbelievable goodness and caring in the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, from observant and not yet observant, or people who don't identify at all with ever being observant, there is this concept that you're part of a family, even if part of it sometimes is dysfunctional, right. or, you know, a little bit estranged, you know, from certain aspects that you're so connected to, but it's still part of being part of a family, which is really so, so important. You just mentioned, you just mentioned Rav Shlomo uh, for the first time in this conversation, really. Um, when did you first cross paths with him? And what, what was his impact on, on your life and on your uh, outlook on living in this land? So it's you know, beyond words. It's sort of like how much and, time uh, do you have? <laughs> beyond words yeah. in terms of, I mentioned the example of the hospital also from Rav Shlomo, you know, and not being a layman, but being a doctor and coming and healing. But at the same time, um, I met Rav Shlomo's music, you know, a lot as a child. I remember going to his, the first concert as, when I was living in Staten Island, being mesmerized by the whistling, the, and just the whole persona and the band. 
sometimes even out in the village with my parents as a kid and certain chavah that maybe got close or connected through Rav Shlomo's uh, teachings and music. I remember now just going to concerts and just being drawn and pulled, running out to buy tapes, whatever was new. But the first time really that I connected to the teachings part was really when I was in college and the West Side for Shabbos, which is a very popular place for singles. And happening upon the Kabbalah show looking for a late davening after hanging out late Friday night. Right, tiny little show. And uh, physically a tiny little show, but infinite holiness, infinite, infinite longing and yearning. As much as I thought I knew so much from the book and I knew so much text and I had already, honestly, I had finished Shas already and I had so much learning and uh, Tanakh, etc. And I came from a different angle than most of the 90, um, almost everyone in the show. But watching the way some of those people kissed the Sefer Torah, the way they didn't sit with a stopwatch in shul, looking at the clock, the way they closed their eyes during parts of davening, sometimes going to the classes in the shul by Rav Shlomo's students on meditation, and, and it bodudot, and teaching from Rabbi Nachman and Ishbitz, and finally when I had, had a chance to be in the shul through Rav Shlomo, He's teaching the Me'ashilach, a Rebbe that's not taught in the average Shana Aleph Shana Bet programs, uh, you know, or even mentioned in those years. It wasn't at all you know, any form of repertoire. There's something there that really um, clicked and connected in a deep, deep, beyond deep level. And after that, any time Shlomo was in New York, we made a point to go to the shul. Shlomo traveled a lot. It wasn't like he was a shul rabbi, like you think about, there's the Shachrit in the morning, and you know, he gave a daily class in between Mincha Right. He was traveling all over the world, but whenever he came was a spiritual marathon, starting sometimes from a Thursday night learning. Well, Friday night evening continued to Sunday, late morning, early afternoon, with learning and shiurim and Malava Malkis. And, and really, Rav Shlomo was my heart surgeon, and he opened up the heart. A lot of times, Rabbeim teaches how to open up the book, what perak, what pasak, how many lines from the Mishnah, from the two dots. But Rosh Shlomo taught us how to open, our, taught me how to open my heart, and to really open up to really, really feeling and connecting on the level of that marechet haplimiot of everything, that inside, inside, inside connection. That really was what I was looking for the whole time. <laughs> Just couldn't articulate it when I was 16 years old. But at the same time, he really and continues to satiate my neshama, whether it's looking for new recordings, new teachings, old concerts, old kumzitzes. And I spend a lot of time always trying to listen to and to find something new from... Uh, and those are the teachings that really are constantly always filling me. So your, your, uh, your time with him in New York, and you said even in Israel... Um, but your time with him in New York, uh, these marathon uh, Shabbatot plus, let's call them, um, this is during college? This is after college? This is towards the end of college. You know, the music was getting stronger and stronger in college, you know. I'm not saying, again, everyone has their own taste in music, but that's yeah. just saying that everyone was listening to uh, our alternatives, <laughs> Mordechai Ben David, Avram Fied in those years. <laughs> and Rav Hashem, this was also being plugged in, you know, after a long day, whether it's Talmud classes or whether it was, you know, finishing a degree in accounting or whether it was, you know, taking other core classes, but always, always the, the melodies racing through your head and running through your head and the, story, and the stories and even walking to, to and from a train. It was always, always, you know, I always had Rav Shlomo with me, the Rebbe, not only B'Shiftachav, sitting, but also traveling. And Baruch Hashem, and other, 
on the other hand, going back to the initial thing you brought up, it's not like Rav Shlomo said to us, you have to, you know, it was just so clear. He let everyone find the special path in the own way, but it was clear, you know, when you were sitting there, that Eretz Yisrael is such an integral part of becoming the full, complete Jew and the full spiritual expression. It's only in Eretz Yisrael, it's only in Yishalayim. And during that slow course, Shlomo very, very much turned as much as Rav Shlomo spent his whole life on the topic of world peace and being world peace, but when it came to the Oslo Accords and giving away land for so-called peace, we all understood it was land for terror, land for peace, equal Shvichot Amim. And Rav Shlomo very, very much spent those years from approximately 90, the last few years very much talking out against the Oslo Accords and very much coming to sing in the Yishuvim and the settlements and connecting to the people here of Chavron and Gush Katif and the Shamron at Kevin Yosef at Tzadik, and we'd come back always and talk about what was going on. I still remember a little bit when I was here in Israel in 1983, Shlomo came for the Lebanon War to give strength to the soldiers over here right. and going to a concert during that period of time. And that caring and those tears every time he sang and that Ishtafchot HaNefesh, that pouring of the soul on the plight of Am Yisrael, and feeling that need when it's a war, most individuals, they think about how they could get out of their dangerous, perilous situation. Right. Rav Shlomo was running to be with the Jewish people during the perilous situations and during the hard times. And that also was something, you know, that learning, learning how to cry with another Jew and learning, learning how to feel the pain of another Jew, even if it's not someone that's immediate, you know, in your immediate kila, that's something I definitely picked up from Rav Shlomo. So you get your degree in accounting, which I find fascinating. You don't strike me as much of an accountant, but, but you get a degree in accounting. Uh, and then what happens next? What do you do from there? We worked, we worked a little bit in accounting, you know. Really? I can't say that I enjoyed it. <laughs> you know, again, you have to remember that Baruch Hashem, my parents, because they care so much and they wanted me to have the best, best future. Yeah. But from the way, especially as I mentioned, parents who came over after World War I and Having a stable, good job with a set Sally was the m so important and having a college degree. And that's accounting, was, right? Uh, and that's the definition of accounting. You always need, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was the most boring and the most non-inspirational type of uh, uh, college degree you could get or job you could go to. On the other hand, it also, I call it though, now post facto, I say, it taught me to make Kalem for all this great light. And sometimes you receive tremendous light and tremendous amount of, you know, we speak about spiritual energy, yeah. but vessels are also very, very important. Counting puts everything in balance and you have to have a balance sheet and you have to have revenue and expenditures and some or other, I think in a crazy way, that degree somehow helped me being Caleb to all the infiniteness yeah. that Rav Shlomo was giving me. Yeah, fair. <laughs> yeah, fair. I like that. I like that. So what did you do after college? After college, we worked a little bit in accounting, right. and uh, in those days it was called the Big Eight, Ernst & Winnie, later on became Ernst & Young, yeah. but it definitely wasn't, you know, the long calling, and a little bit of Shetchayim Miyimsa, we were a little bit searching for that, for that part of life also, sure. the future partner of life, and of course that whole criteria of living in Eretz Yisrael made it not as simple, but also the whole criteria being not just orthodox, but wanting to be a very, we'll call it spiritually expressive person also. And that also made it a little bit more complicated. Mm. 
And Baruch Hashem, being so connected to the Kabach Shul Manhattan, and most of the people being a little bit older, a little bit older singles, and a little bit, maybe start with Shlomo more in the early 70s, late 60s. So there wasn't what appeared to be as much social opportunity there. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, Baruch Hashem, I had one of my rabbis in the West Side, Rabbi Alan Schwartz, mm-hmm. and he had a show called... Um, OZ. OZ, Orif Tzedek. And those years, there was no minion practically. We just was to come wow. to help. Interesting. And, you know, I shouldn't say no minion, but there was barely a minion. Yeah. And we would sometimes help him, you know, uh, d- during the college years. Learned a lot of Tanakh from him. He was very young then, so he, uh, not being chutzpah but he was like a Rebbe friend. Okay. You know, and he was like a, someone. Like a peer. He tried to make it that way. Uh-huh. Of course, he was superior <laughs> in every way, but, you know, he tried to. You know, and he was also very, very much, you know, impressed that I knew so much Tanakh and, um, and also had this spiritual thirst, etc. And Baruch Hashem, we stayed friendly for so many years. After that, for years, now already it's slightly different, but he always made a point to visit me. It wasn't a year he didn't come to visit me and, uh, quote, as if he was going to take my tour to learn from me, but, you know, etc. <laughs> but he, he always was a good friend and uh, teacher. Um, but coming back, I had the good to meet my wife, Dafka Nekabachshel, Lag Boma. Rav Shlomo introduced us one to another. Wow. After a long, long learning and deep, deep teachings, you know, from unbelievable teachings from the Zohar and the, the writings of the Rizal and a night with candles and a lot of swaying, a lot of longing, yearning, hoping to connect to the Primiyot HaTorah of Gal Enei Vabita Neflot Mitaratecha. Shlomo at the end of the concert lifts his eyes up to heaven. And he says, I need the biggest favor in the world. Can anyone take back Holy Sister Leila back to Brooklyn? And at that time, I was much more into hanging out afterwards and uh, right. meeting friends, etc. And my first, uh, Shlomo raised his eyes as if like a new tomb was coming down or a teaching or some deep heavenly connection. And then all of a sudden, Shlomo says, Sumcha, you take her back. And at the same time, I said, Shalom, I'm not going back yet. I'm not going to Brooklyn. And he says, in a very imperative tone, which was non-characteristic. Unusual, right? And he says, you take her back. And he smiles and gives me a wink. And Baruch really? Hashem, we got married at the cave of David HaMelech. And Shlomo officiated our wedding at the cave of David HaMelech. And Baruch Hashem, my wife, also had the great zchut uh, to her, uh, her mom and both herself. of Shlomo's Makar of them. And had sent them mm-hmm. to Israel when she was just a young girl, fourth graders approximately. Wow. And really had guided them throughout the whole spiritual path. Even after my mother-in-law had remarried, also had met at a Shabbaton that Rosh Shlomo ran. And got married in a holy man mountain retreat somewhere in Philadelphia. And at the same time, Baruch Hashem, he always made a point to visit their home in Montreal. Tried a, one, a few times a year to give classes there and concerts, etc. So that's a little bit there of Shlomo connection. Wow. So you have a lot to uh, to appreciate him for, that's for sure. Yeah, one of my children is also Shlomo, okay. and he happens to be also the gifted, super gifted. He, w- he was in Duv Devan, and he's like a real, Shlomo David is his name, and he has wow, that's the, a strong, name. The, the strong, strong name, and he has the, <laughs> he fought in Duv Devan, and he plays the guitar unbelievable. When he's already five years old, ah, five tunes for Yibana Mikdash, he could rattle them off and whistle them. Uh, three tunes for the Mikdash, he knew every... Alter- 
every lost niggin and every uh, and since then he's been playing and developing a lot of his musical skills. He's also in university now for practical reasons. Sure. After he started his accounting, accounting but, degree. Uh, I let him choose. <laughs> he's, he's, he ch chose nursing. Okay. But a similar type of idea yeah. to have some kalim to all that great light. Yeah. And Baruch Hashem, we're very proud of him. I got to ask you about this tiny chapter in your life that you know about. You don't know that I know about it, but I have to mention it. By Cultural Day School in Stanford, Connecticut, where I went to elementary school. Oh, wow. <laughs> Tell me about your time at Bicultural. Uh, Bicultural was an amazing, amazing, amazing... It's a beautiful school, isn't it? Amazing experience. i never forget, the, the first question, there was a rabbi, Avram Lieberman, Allah Shalom, was a minister educator. Right, rabbi Lieberman, and, uh, sure. He, one of the first questions he asked me in the interview was, are you into, we're not looking here for scholars only, we're looking for rabbis who like to tell stories and like children for Shabbos, who will be, you know, warm to the children. And this was like exactly what I was looking for. I'd started teaching in a very chashev yeshiva in Brooklyn, and but it was all about text. Stick to the text. Finish more dafim. Finish more tosfot, etc. And it was uh, th that was the measurement of the thing, and that was what I had sort of run away from after high school, you know, <laughs> and was looking for that more. And this was exactly what I was looking for. Yes, it's a curriculum, of course. Yes, it's homework. Yes, it's a workbook. But yes, there was so much warmth and so much love and so much unbelievable um, desire to have the kids connect that white fire of the Torah to beyond the words and to mm -hmm. a little bit that spirit of the Torah. So bicultural was definitely very shaping. Rabbi Lieberman, Mr. S, Rabbi Alman, and others who really, um, uh, till, till today, Rabbi Lieberman is also someone that... Uh, always made a point to visit me every single year till his till unfortunately he got sick right, right. and couldn't travel even when he was just initially sick he still came and he never missed a visit with me and his grandchildren never missed a Shabbos with me and he made sure all the years from when I left Bicultural in 95 till his Batira to stay in touch yeah and that was that's a school that Israel is really central to to what they're doing and you know Mr. S with Zichron Olivacha who also passed away in the last couple of years would always take a a group to Israel every year sometimes people who had no background at all just because he appreciated the incredible product that this land is and uh yeah Cool place. Well, thanks for spending a couple of minutes on that. Yeah, yes. You should know that one of the greatest things is, is, you know, again, officially, you know, many of the children come from non-Orthodox backgrounds. And unfortunately, many of the kids don't continue a Jewish education. But somehow or other, any kid that did continue found me. Huh. And years, so many years later, they looked me up, they found me, uh, whether it's via many different social medias, sure. and they stayed in touch. For many of them had Chavutot, they came for Shabbat, and some are living here. So that is an amazing school. It doesn't fit any official Torah Masorah. No. Yeah, no. You know, uh, uh, so it's a curriculum, but some or other, what they were doing was working tremendously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And had a tremendous, <laughs> tremendous positive influence of allowing me to express myself. And my spiritual side, you know, spiritual expression beyond the text also. So that was bicultural. And then you decide, okay, now's the time. So it was more than that. Okay. It was all that was going on. Okay, so 1993, the Oslo Accords were signed. And what looked very optimistic, that Israel was finally finding a solution to all the terror was really, as far as I understood, right then already, my initial gut and my gut and my gut, 
So this says a disaster. When you talk about peace, such a divine holy concept, you can't put it through such filthy pipes mm. as Yasser Arafat and other politicians. And it has to come from something much, much purer. I was in bicultural then. I remember every single day reading about more terror, Arab trucks. It started within Aza, ramming into soldiers and drive-by shootings, Molotov cocktails. Chevron being slated to be dismantled, Gush Katif, Nitzarim, Kvadaram. And we realized that we had to do something in order to, in order to try to get involved and to stop what was going on. And what to do was not so clear. On one hand, we love Eretz Yisrael, and how could a Jew in America claim to know better, or his gut knows better than what long-term, life-term committed people who spent their whole life fighting for Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael are saying that this is what the best solution is. On the other hand, we know that there's a whole Masechet Horiot about great leaders making mistakes. And even the Sanhedrin, even when they're spiritual leaders, for sure when it's not spiritual people, that they could also be making mistakes. And we came on a mission in approximately 1994, right before Purim, to strengthen, Dov Haikin was organizing that mission. Guy Bruce Rudolph from the, at that time lived in America, but was very connected to the Yeshiva of Kiyar And we came to try to strengthen the Jewish communities of Yesha. Yuda, Yud, Shin, Shamron, Ayan, Azah. And we came to Yesha, means salvation also, and we tried to a little bit, so to say, to try to draw from those waters, Yudashaman and Azah. Now, although I learned and I had visited and spent Shabbatonim in, in uh, Elon Moreh, and I had visited Beitel, and I visited Chevron, but it was very, very different this mission, coming as a young adult, as a married person with two kids, not just collecting money, I was also. I didn't mention a rabbi of a shul in Manhattan during my bicultural days called Eldridge Street Synagogue. An amazing presence of that shul, Judge Paul Buxin, Pinchas Eliyahu Buxin, who was also a tremendous encouragement. I just say in his chut, he paid my salary the whole first year after my aliyah. Really? Yeah, I did practically nothing, but he's just so wow. proud that I made aliyah wow. to Chevron and I was living the dream everyone in the shul felt. And he always also, till this day of his death, made a point to always, always visit me, Chok Vlo Yavo, always came with his wife Tova to visit and to come here, never came empty-handed either, and he always made a point to be a dear friend and a supporter, and like a partner in my full Aliyah experience. So that was something, going back to the, what we discussed earlier, this, I had, a, unlike a lot of people who made Aliyah in those years, I had a tremendous support of people who were, uh, whether, like I said, from work colleagues yeah. or spiritual colleagues, a tremendous love and, uh, and, and fanfare that we're rooting you know, for this to work and to happen. With that said, after this whole mission occurred, I came back. At that time, Chevron was really under, it was right at that Purim of 94 was the story of Dr. Goldstein. Right. And the government of Israel um, really then wanted to, quote, punish the people of Kiradaba Chevron, and they wanted to hasten they're already Oslo Accords of not waiting and to already start throwing Jews out of Chevron, take away the Maratamachpelah's accessibility to the Jewish people, go back to there it was 750 years ago. And when I came back to Leah, we said as much as we're doing here in America, in inreach, outreach, having a shul, teaching day school, an unbelievable Shabbos table, 
of really, really people that no one that we knew of was having or hosting, and uh, we always had this Rishut HaRabim type of apartment. <laughs> and at the same time, Baruch Hashem, we made the point and we said, this September we're not continuing, and we have to have the strength. This is the time. Right. Going back to Rav Shlomo and Rav Aikana, if it's broken, it means that if you see darkness and you see something's wrong, it's up to you to fix it. And it means it's a sign that that's part of your calling. And therefore we knew we have to come specifically to one of those places that was under fire. And we're not going to make an aliyah of just what's good for us or for our children or for our social norm that we were used to. But we have to do something where what does Amisho need? As a kid, I remember a statement, if I'm not mistaken, was from FDR. And he had said, don't ask what your country could do for you, but uh, ask what you could do JFK. for your country. JFK. JFK. One of those JFK. Yeah. But anyway, it was JFK, <laughs> and that was, became my big, big motto. Wow. Something I had used when in a political debate I was involved with in high school, and there, that became something that was running through my head nonstop. What could I do now? What could I do for myself? Now, the initial thing was, what are you going to do when you come to Israel? Okay, so you're against Oslo Accords, you're against Land for Peace. So Yitzhak Rabin is now shaking because a Jew from America, even if he has a shul, you know, in Manhattan, <laughs> what difference is going to really make? And what are you going to do from 9 to 5 every, so to say, every single day? So that demonstrations at night. You know, that thing's happening with uh, the Shmuel Sackett and, and, and other, and that time Moshe Feiglin was mm -hmm. part, um, they, they were very active in trying to fight Oslo Accords and What's going to happen the day you land? And some other, me and my wife had gone before we made Aliyah on a pilot trip. And of course, as concerned parents and loving parents, there's a dime a dozen. Every has the guy has a teacher certificate. It's not a new thing. Everyone can teach in Israel. And my Hebrew was, I wouldn't say poor, but it wasn't great. And I had not spoken Hebrew, you know, for so many years on a daily basis. And because you went to Yeshiva Flappish to fourth grade, you know, that's not enough Hebrew to keep you going. Although they do deserve credit. Uh, they deserve they're a lot of credit. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure, And I learned Pasha Lech Lecha there. And Chayisar. And at the same time, Baruch Hashem, one way or the other, we had the great, the great thing that everywhere we went, somehow Hashem opened up gates to us. And my first job was in Bat Ayin. We came on this uh, pilot trip, me and my wife. And I'll never forget how within this pilot trip we had two offers, both of us. My wife is an OT mm -hmm. from NYU and I came to a yeshuv here called Batayin and it was also a place that had a lot of colorful ballet tshuva and people who were very Chavakok type of community of Chabad, Breslev and Rav Shlomo, Rav Kook, Kaaba Kook and a lot, a lot of people with a spiritual longing and yearning and at the same time I, they had a little elementary school. A lot of Tanakh was studied, and, I, and a lot of the older grades, after fifth grade, they were learning Mishnayot. And it was a Bakai type of system of learning in those years. And I, and I said, what are you learning? And they said, you know, this is a suicide hour. It's the last class before Pesach vacation. Kids are cleaning up. There's nothing. They're not going to listen to you. Uh, it's, it's Chaval. They're, they're bouncing off the walls already. Right. And after a long as man, I said, listen, I'm here now, let's try it. And they were learning something in Mesechet Pesachim, a Mishnah about Pesach Sheni. I happened to get my smicha from Shlomo Pesach Sheni. And at the smicha, he talked about this Mishnah. And it wasn't just a shot of the Mishnah, but also, 
and some or other, and there was a story, of course, that went with the Mishnah, and some other the kids sat, the last period before vacation, not just 45 minutes, but even after. And he says, I don't want you to start a Rosh Chodesh already. <laughs> and don't wait till September. So I had to offer the Embatayin. And similarly in Gush Katif, another place we planned to visit, as if after Rosh Shlomo left the world, he was still opening gates for me. There was a Malava Malka there in Gush Katif, in the hotel. And there, Yehuda Katz was singing. And he says, anyone in the crowd want to tell a story from Rosh Shlomo? And some people got up, and some of the Zerli Chava, and then I said, I'll tell something. And I told this story, and there, all of a sudden, this very well-built fellow with a big kippah and a gun on, on his shoulder said, And I heard you talking, and I'm looking for this type of mechanech for kita hay next year, and I'm wondering, what's your status? Could you, uh, would you be interested in coming to teach by us? And this is a pilot trip. This is a pilot trip. <laughs> and before you know it, I had two concrete offers and two, but I and, and Atzmona, two very, you know, uh, respectable positions. Yeah. And so too with Leah, Hashem opened gates, both she had offered in Gush Etzion and in Gush Katif to come and to teach and to, uh, and you know, so Hashem was opening gates, Hashem was opening gates for us even after to come. And we came to Chavon in 1995. And we started Aliyah over here during that time. Why did you choose Hebron and not Gush Katif? I can't really say 100% I mean, you know, yeah. what, what it was. But we knew some people there. We were connected from both the Rav Kahana side and the Rav Shlomo side. There were students and disciples. And there was also a little minion over here that start, on Friday night. And there was a little bit more some English speakers over here to make the learning a little softer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some other... We felt with the, the Bad-Ayin opportunity as, uh, you know, also something, uh, as opportunity as something that would have a better chance for a longer future. Right, right. Can we shift gears for a second? Mm-hmm. What's it like raising children here, both in the land of Israel and in Hebron specifically? Mm-hmm. So raising children here, like anywhere in the world, has its unbelievable... <laughs> Bringing up children is always, uh, is always the greatest privilege and the greatest, greatest job in the world. You know, it's a full-time job and it never stops even after the children are married. And raising kids has been amazing. It's good to be here in Eretz Having your children part of a greater calling and bringing up kids in Hebron as really, really being empowered and being on a mission has been something very, 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 very special. My kids didn't have, though, the challenge that a lot of Olim do have. My children were very little when they made Aliyah. They mastered the language right away. They identify more as Israeli than American. They don't know when it's, whether it's from food tasting and what sushi is or what, uh, <laughs> or what J2 is or what Ben and Jerry's was. They didn't, and these are things that they didn't have the cocoa pebbles and sugared cereals and stuff of that nature. And Baruch Hashem, my children, I'm all very, very proud of. And I brought up my kids, you know, here in Hebron with a tremendous mission statement and a tremendous calling to be part of a, a fight and a battle to preserve the second holiest site and the holiest city. And all my kids grew up with that. And the other end, my kids also grew up in a very um, hotly contested area with conflict and sometimes violence have a daughter named after Shalhevet Pass, who's, although in our circles, doing the army is not so common, 
Um, Shirut Lumi is a much more national service, is a much bigger calling. My daughter chose um, to do the army. She's in the Navy now. And she is very, very, very much very proud of her religious upbringing and yet very proud of her national calling to give back to her country. And what she said when she made the decision was, all my life on my rooftop, there are soldiers watching over me. And since I'm a kid, I've been interactive with soldiers. Now's my chance to give back a little bit and to protect my country. Wow. So, and all my children chose fighting units. My oldest son, Nachman, was part of the Modian. Uh, uh, it's intelligence, but it's also fighting unit. Yes. A lot of heads the boys do. San Shlomo, did, I mentioned earlier, did Divan. And Baruch Hashem, all my, uh, my daughter shall have it. But my kids always, whether it's feeding soldiers or going out to keep soldiers company, or just saying, passing by soldiers and saying a good word, we, the children very much felt connected to, to this concept of Amisa. It's a, it's a very intense way to grow up as a child. Do you, do you have any kids who are like, you know, I think when I get married I want to live in Ranana. <laughs> like, it, do you have it? And don't get so, specific, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But is there some of that? Of, mm-hmm. You know, like, why, why can't we just sort of... So like I think now my younger kids maybe have that a little bit, but the, during the years of the conflict, the opposite. It was, you can't leave Chevron, it's Asura. We have to be here, we have to stay here. And this is part of the, part of the calling. I think now that the, when the younger kids, we are, thank God, things are quieter in Chevron. So now when they go out to Opanah, they go out to Yeshiva Tichonit, and they go to friends' houses for Shabbat, and they see their kids with a backyard and a front yard, and a nice migrash and a nice basketball court, right. or a soccer stadium, or kids that, quote, hang out on yeah. a Thursday night, a Saturday night, you know, etc. And they see that this existence does exist also. So it does weaken a little bit that, uh, you know, thing. But at the same time, as a whole, they're all very proud still to live here. But there is definitely more exposure now to a bigger world with our phones, etc. Sure. which didn't exist in 1995, 2000, right. during those years of Intifada. But I think that could apply to anywhere. You bring up your kids today with the technology and exposure to other options. You know, there, there are a lot, of, a lot of people will say, you know, like, I would love to move my family to Israel, but education is just such a big challenge. And I, when I was in the process of considering things, and you know, I said to my Rav in Baltimore at the time, uh, um, I, I just heard the education is just so poor there. And he actually, in a joking way, I don't want to get him into trouble, in a joking way, he slapped me on the cheek. He said, don't ever say that the education in Eretz Yisrael is poorer than the education here. Your kids are going to grow up fluent in Hebrew. They can open up any sefer their entire life and know exactly what they're reading. The education in Israel is absolutely fine. My question for you is, raising your kids in, in Hebron, education's a challenge, no? You know, every child is, is a world in of himself, and I don't think there's really one clear answer. I don't think anyone who's bringing up their kids in America could say education is easy. <laughs> I don't think anyone who's honest with themselves could say that every kid fits one mode, or if I send my kid to one trap, it all works out. It definitely has, like any t- anything in the, in the world, uh, bringing up teenagers, uh, bringing up teenagers, but I see it still as what a privilege for my kids to learn B'lashon Kodesh and Ivrit, to be able to have that ability to open up a Sefer and to be able to connect to it. But I think it's important, you know, to know that really every option that you have in America exists I think in a better manner over here. Meaning, if someone 
find themselves in the centrist orthodox community in America and is taking, I'm just of course stereotyping and there's exceptions to everything I'm saying, sure. but in a general way, he identifies himself with the YU school of thought and he identifies with Rav Salavetsuk's teachings, Rav Shechter's teachings, and etc. And he's from that Kav. Uh, so he may send himself, send his kid to a centrist orthodox school and modern orthodox elementary school, high school. And the truth of the matter is, just like you have that option here, you have many beautiful options like that over here, and you have beautiful Mamad schools and Torah, and, and with options of more Torah programs and hours for more Torah programs, and having options of going a little bit more intense. If someone wants to identify himself more on a Hardal level and would send their kid, uh, you know, to something more in America, more than a day school, but yet not an ultra yeshiva's place, you have that option also here in Eretz whether it's in a Rappaport form or it's in a more Talmud Torah form uh, that you have, whether it's a Zilberman or a Bakai, etc. type of option. And that option also exists. And if someone wants to is identify himself more, and again, everything of course has exceptions in a more Lakewood style mannerism or a Brooklyn flappish type style mannerism, you also have those options over here. And I think the Haredi may have quite more, as, as, as Haredi as a Jew in Brooklyn or in Lakewood and the Limanat Torah, is equally as strong. And so I really think no matter what machana and this person in the Shama is wired or channeled or has a particular, um, we'll call it identification with, I think one can find all of those options over here and, and more. Sometimes I will say, ah, but the Haredim here are missing the concept of appreciating the army and the love of Eretz. So let's just say that aspect is true. One could supplement his child and give him at home that aspect of things. If some would say the regular mamad is not enough for my kids and it's too loose and there's too much diverse backgrounds of kids coming from many, many different even countries and the parents having come from different countries, I need more. There's also more and one could strengthen a little bit the Torani aspect over here. And if one wants to identify with, uh, we'll call it what they call today the Chadal aspect, and Baruch Hashem, those Torah institutions are here and strong. And therefore, I think there's parallels to everything. And if even someone says, you know what, I want my kid to have a similar American-style education. You can find similar things in Efrat. You can find similar things in Beit Shemesh and Ramat Beit Shemesh. And I'm not saying that's the healthy option to, 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 to transfer America to Israel. But if someone says that, there's also that possibility of dabbling in such a shul with a shul rav and uh, having that similar type of community life that perhaps the child would have had in America. One more question before we get to the rapid fire questions. Uh, you mentioned in the beginning of the conversation that uh, reading the newspaper, looking at stories about Israel was, was sometimes the first, but sometimes the second area you'd look at the newspaper. You used to look at the sports pages. There's a, there's a famous story about Rav Chaim Pinchas Scheinberg Zetzel. Um, I don't know if it's a true story or if it's just apocryphal, but when the New York Yankees won the World Series in 1996, his Talmidim told him, because they knew that he grew up in New York, a Yankees fan, that the Yankees won the World Series, and he started crying. And they said, Rebbe, like, why is the Rebbe crying? And he said, I'm crying because this is the first time in my life that I don't care that they won the World Series. You loved sports when you were growing up. Where is sports in your life now? 
So it's interesting, you know, first of all, the story really, the initial story wasn't that. The initial story was oh, that okay. was so Wait, excited. And he went, yes, you know, like, uh, and he got all excited that the Yankees won. And that, that uh, is, is something. Later on, uh, to modify it and to fit certain, uh, oh, okay. certain uh, politically correctness, <laughs> the story was changed. But uh, the <laughs> story um, was wow. uh, okay. that he was excited that the Yankees won. And that was part of his gifts to the Amkuta. And the same thing is, of course, you know, it, it took many, many years. I watched the Super Bowl for so many years. I had the privilege to be a Rebbe. 25 years in the yeshiva called Reshet Yushalayim, Rabbi Marcus Steinalen, continuing. And the boys there are also into sports and playing sports. And They have a great gym. You know, we have a beautiful <laughs> gym in Beit Shemesh. And I still will sometimes, uh, after night say the the tennis court there, I also love playing tennis. We'll swing the racket a little bit with the boys. And sometimes on a Sunday night, 11 o'clock, when they're watching American football, if the night state is over, I'll sit and I'll watch a few downs with them. And, okay. uh, and we still appreciate whenever I'm in America, I'll try to go with a friend. To whatever sporting event or season it is, we still have an appreciation. But there is a little bit, of course, as the years go, a little less excitement, enthusiasm, or caring about what's going on. But there's nothing like hearing or, or watching some highlights, uh, too many highlights, you know, of, uh, of a good game <laughs> and getting, you know, the, 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 main, the main events of the game. Unfortunately, in Hebron, uh, people were less into sports, but I always had Noam Federman, who was a very close disciple and activist for many years of Rabbi Kahana. We played tennis for many years oh. and we learned, you know, or Rayon for many years and we learned other and we are still active on the topic of the Harabayit, yeah. but that didn't exclude our playing tennis once a year. <laughs> once, uh, we tried once a week, yeah. and sometimes it turned out then once a month, and then yeah. it was Chalamite here and there, but still, you know, we, we did try to keep it up for a while. <laughs> Rapid-fire questions. You can answer these as quickly or take as much time as you want. It's totally up to you. Uh, in the Hachbam home, Kedem or Israeli grape juice? For sure, Israeli grape juice, B and D, any organic grape juice that's produced in the Yeshuvim, that's what we drink, we love, that's a treat. I recently heard, this is actually from Rav Moshe Lichtman, he, he told me that there are some Israeli grape juices that are actually, uh, that the grapes come from Chutzlaretz, that you actually have to be careful in terms of bracha achrona with some Israeli grape juices to make sure that, uh, that they're, they're produced in Israel. I don't know if you're aware of that. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not aware of it, but we're not with that. We only, only, only uh, stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we also, when it comes to fruits, we're everything pre-harets. Even when I have to go to Chutzot, on behalf of Chavon, I bring, there's a Rav, I'm close to Rav, Moshe Weinberg, if I'm H. Kodesh. And some, for some reason, sometimes it gives me a lot of cover when I'm there to speak. And sometimes I bring him dates or figs from Eretz Yisrael, right. and you know to try to share a little bit from the fruits of Eretz Yisrael. Yeah. Heinz uh, or Israeli ketchup? Heinz. <laughs> okay. Is there an Israeli food that you love the most? I think I got a little taste here in Chavon from the Yemenite foods, chilba, and sometimes pasta, and definitely that Friday night has become part of my. Uh, Part, part of, of my Shabbos. taste bud. Part of your Shabbos. Part of my Shabbos. Yeah, yeah. And is there an Israeli food you can't stand? That you have no idea why people actually like it? It took me years to develop a taste for hummus. Still don't appreciate tchina. Interesting. Uh, have you tried to do the Israeli Hebrew accent? And if, if, if not, 
Why not? If yes, why do you think it's important? What are your thoughts on the Israeli Hebrew accent? Everyone should do what they're comfortable. I have no preference. And uh, any, you know, everyone should follow their family custom and what, 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 what speaks best to their soul. You know, I enjoy sometimes listening to Yeshiva Stavening. I enjoy listening to the Havara Ivrit. And um, both have their sources and both should be, you know, properly expressed, etc. Because I started as a kidney Yeshiva Flappish, Tavin Young Israel. So by me, actually, my. It was very, very natural for me to also speak with Havara Ivrit, and we continue with that. In terms of day-to-day conversation, do you try to speak like an Israeli would speak, or, or do you have no problem with no just problem. sounding like an American? No problem sounding like an American, and yeah. you know, the, you can't get rid of the, you know, the accent, certain accents, but always be with you. And Baruch Hashem, we incorporate our Aliyah, we incorporate our past into our present, and I'm proud that I made Aliyah, and I don't have to hide it or try to camouflage it with learning the Israeli accent. Yeah. You're such a positive, optimistic person, but do you have any pet peeves about life in Israel? Pet peeves again? Uh, do you have any uh, pet peeves in terms of little annoyances that come up because of what the culture is like here or what the society is like here? I think Shabbos morning still took me a long time. Uh, I'm used to being a long, drawn-out uh, davening with a sermon and a nice kiddush afterwards. I, 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 I sometimes miss that. Sometimes in Eretz Yisrael, I started because of that at 9 o'clock minion in the Maratha Machpela, where we daven a little bit more benachat and there's a kiddush and people learn with each other afterwards and before davening. So that's something I established because I missed. I did it for selfish reasons and that American-style uh, Shabbos morning. And you find other, other members of the community have been drawn to that? Or is yeah, it mostly uh, visitors? It's more, uh, no, there are definitely some locals, uh, you know, we have a core group, right. and of course visitors, yeah. but in Chavon that's a major part, but we definitely have a core minion, otherwise, you know, of our 10 to 20 guys, and then uh, we have, of course, people that join in, Yeshiva boys, every Shabbos that join us. What brings you to tears about the land of Israel? Still, still, I'm always, always being moved. I'm always being moved. There's something, still, t- every time, uh, a meaningful conversation with a chayal, seeing soldiers at a swearing in ceremony, whether it's in a parking lot or it's at the hotel. Um, I still, when I go to a shul in Eretz Yisrael, that's not my regular shul, it's in Pades Chanasim Chatora. It's just, uh, I try to go to a place I know I knew my name for different reasons. I needed a little uh, down. And it was just seeing that fire and that passion. And sometimes seeing people coming in that aren't regular shul goers and the way they're dancing with the, the quote, the, the traditional Israeli still brings me to a uh, tremendous going to an Israeli taxi and hearing the taxi driver rattle off Tanakh and Psukim. Uh, all these things still very, 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 very much move me. And I think also just seeing Israelis enjoying life and walking on sometimes on a Saturday night and seeing people, young people hanging out and drinking and friends meeting. That's also something that brings me to tears. A healthy Jewish body, a healthy Jewish soul, and seeing the Jewish life not just being persecuted in a survival mode, but Jews enjoying and enjoying life. That's something that still brings me to a tear in my eye, a tear of happiness, of course. Knowing what you know now, is there anything you would have done differently in terms of your own Aliyah? That's not a rapid question. Um, <laughs> the question's fast. I don't know about the answer. 
need, need to think about that a little bit. <laughs> but I do think there is something that those who are making Aliyah may be able to answer in more general. Mm -hmm. It's important to be part of a community. No matter where your Aliyah is, you have to stay in touch with a communal type of... Uh, it doesn't be after a community that it's uh, the, whole, the whole, you know, but it means that it's a kehila, are people who are of the Hashem in a similar manner that perhaps you're used to or that you could identify uh, and integrate with Israeli society. But it's important to have some chai kehila. Um, I think for Americans, making Aliyah, and Baruch Hashem and Chavan, there's a lot, a lot of holy individuals. And yet there is this importance of keeping a some type of communal type of existence and not just doing things on your own. So I think that's integral for Anglos who make Aliyah to connect to some type of a communal type of life and whether it's in spiritual matters or in fun manners, going on vacation together, going out to a drink, you know, during Chalam, going on a trip together on Chalamoid. But I think it's important of good friends, good friends, Dibur Chaverim is the big thing that's important. Excellent advice. What do you miss most about the place you came from? We miss a lot of individuals, but there's very little we miss on the, on the, on the highest spiritual calling. You have, you have siblings? We have siblings, of course, and family. And none of them have made Aliyah also? They're all still in the States? I have only one sister and my mm -hmm. parents. Mm -hmm. Many of my cousins have made Aliyah, and I have two uncles that have made Aliyah. But at the same time, on my mom's side, uh, some of she had as a, we have a lot of cousins also. But my parents is the hardest part of the Aliyah. And that, of course, is uh, especially now during Corona. Now, my parents were amazing. I, because of Chavon, had to go back a few times, few times a year to speak on the Chavon. And my parents always made a point to visit at least once a year and to spend at least a Shabbat over here in Chavon, no matter what was going on in Chavon. And they somehow had some crazy times they came here and crazy things that happened on the road, the Shabbatot that they chose to be here, and they still didn't cancel. So Corona has definitely been hard on that and uh, missing your parents and siblings. But in terms of the big picture, you know, it's something of uh, anything, like I said earlier, you could find uh, over there, you could find over here. <laughs> and Baruch Hashem, uh, but the family part, that's why it was a test for Avram Avinu. Think about it. They talk about Avram as a test. Terach was not, we'll call it, the most loving and caring parent. Mm. <laughs> and he was having a son, you know, turned into the authorities. And yet, it was considered to be Nisayim for Avraham Avinu. And Hashem, Achat Kama Vakama, having loving, caring parents, and, you know, nephews, nieces, etc., who have yet to make Aliyah, and a sister, brother-in-law, so that's definitely something that you miss. But um, it's not like a particular food or a particular <laughs> thing like that, or a particular... So that's, that's in terms of missing. Yeah. A couple more questions. Number one, other than Hebron, is there a a particular place in Israel that you just love? Love the old city in Yerushalayim. Hmm. Especially in the Mazam Quarter. Right, right. Is Aliyah for everyone? thousand percent, yes. No questions? No questions. Could be people have different times, Be'ito, of when it's the right time for them to make Aliyah. But Aliyah is for everyone. Last question. What's your magnet? What I mean by that is, if you think of like the stereotype of... Uh, of someone having a magnet on their refrigerator that says, you know, always be happy, or you know, some kind of motto. What would your magnet on your refrigerator say? Think positive or be positive. And um, 
follow your dreams follow your dreams Thank you very much for inviting me into your home or maybe allowing me to come into your home and uh, returning again to your story of Aliyah, the beautiful story, and it should continue with much happiness, health, and success. Amen, amen. So I hope it, this should inspire people and we appreciate uh, allowing me to share. And I'm personally amazed the bicultural connection. <laughs> and... Uh, I call to connection and anyway, Vezat Hashem, keep on the mission and we have an obligation of this Lech Lecha to really invite everyone. By the way, just as in general, you know, Jews who for some reason don't identify as Orthodox also, this message is for everyone and for all Jews and finding a place in Eretz Yisrael, both in terms of education, both in terms of a national calling, whether your children are part of a Salman Shechta, whether your children are part of just a Hebrew school on Sunday morning. The whole message is not only we focus a lot on the Orthodox community in our conversation, but every Jew, Aliyah for every Jew, and I believe every Jew, no matter what his political, religious leanings are, has the place here in Eretz Yisrael.